0: It can be a creativity killer to have something that you needed go away, or it can be the best thing that ever happened to your day. Because maybe you pivoted to this other idea that ended up being better than your original plan. The sooner you can figure out how to adjust to that thing that didn't go right, the faster those creative sparks start coming back and you make lemonade out of lemons effectively.
1: With a more than 100 year history, movie making has a lot to teach us about collaboration and creativity in complex environments. How do directors bring together so many people with such different skills for months, sometimes even years to make a movie that holds together as a story that entertains and makes a profit? That's exactly what we asked Scott Rice a film and television director who's been teaching film at the University of Texas at Austin for 25 years. He teaches a course called Script to Screen with the Academy Award-winning actor, Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. We chat with Scott about how to get your creative process unstuck, how to find collaborators that
2: amplify your skills and bring the right energy to a project, and the essential components for telling a compelling story. Whether it's a feature-length movie or a short, convincing pitch. This is Design Better, the show that explores the intersection of design,
1: technology, and the creative process. I'm Eli Woolery. And I'm Aaron Walter. You can get ad-free episodes a week early and get access to our monthly AMAs with big names in design and tech by becoming a Plus subscriber. Visit designbetter.plus to learn more. Stay tuned after the interview for a special glimpse inside Automatic, makers of WordPress, which powers more than 40% of all websites around the world. We chat with Dave Locke, Web3 lead at Automatic, about why he sees crypto as an extension of open source and his perspective on how Automatic is a mission-driven business that cares about people's freedoms online. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Now, back to the show. Well,
2: Scott Rice, welcome to the Design Better podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: We're very excited to have you here. We kind of first learned about you through this really cool course that you teach with Matthew McConaughey, but it turns out you do all this really cool stuff yourself. So, we want to learn about all that, but maybe we could just take a brief kind of as Aaron calls it the nickel tour of your career, how you got started and how you ended up where you are today.
0: Sure. Well, I'll I'll make it quick. So I graduated from film school at the University of Wisconsin as an undergrad, got a solid background in film theory and analysis, studied under David Bordwell there. Always wanted to be a filmmaker, but didn't have the money to go to graduate film school. So I worked for three years in video games as an animator, 3D animator and art director. So I worked for Activision then left to go to Austin to do graduate film school there and did more production there, made a bunch of films that got into festivals and got some distribution, got an agent, and then made some spec commercials, which are speculative commercials. Uh, You kind of make fake commercials to prove that you can make real commercials. So I did that, and then I started getting paid to be a commercial director in 2005. So I've been doing that for a long time. I also make documentaries. I'm developing features. I've been paid as a screenwriter. And I've been teaching at the university ever since just because I love teaching. So I've been there for a long time and doing a class called Script to Screen, which is an advanced producing class with Matthew McConaughey since 2015. Teaching is kind of a reminder, a constant reminder of the fundamentals that are so important that the process of production is inherently messy and you just got to trust the process. But I don't get frustrated with the process because I'm constantly reassuring my students and reminding them that, hey, you're struggling as student filmmakers. I'm struggling as a professional filmmaker. It's just hard. What we're doing is hard. So I think getting back to the fundamentals is great. And then also co-teaching a class with Matthew is brilliant because he brings in all these huge directors, you know, who bring in Harmony Kareen or Gary Ross, or he worked with Guy Ritchie and he had a lot of stuff to share. So I'm also gleaning a lot of information from Matthew's directors and collaborators from the class. So that's really cool as well. Yeah,
2: it's really cool, Scott, how you have folks from industry. We have a similar thing in the class I teach where we bring in these coaches and they're all in industry. They all, you know, have worked either in physical or digital product design. And they do some similar things, like it sounds like you do to bring them up to like factories or places where products are actually made. So you get a sense like, it can be really abstract when you're learning something in this sort of academic environment that's sort of one step removed. But it seems like having that opportunity to bring them directly to where, you know, the professional work is happening is really powerful.
0: Yeah, I mean, we at the University of Texas just call it experiential learning. And the idea is to just get that hands-on experience. And the class itself is also producing a TV show called Hot Science that we're actually making what we hope will be. It's currently on the web at hotscience.tv, but we're hoping to make it a broadcast show, probably on PBS. And that's literally the class just making a science show. And it's super fun. It's a collaboration with Geosciences at UT. And it's great. And then we shoot stuff with Matthew McConaughey. We shot a PSA with him back in the spring. That's about school safety. And, you know, the students are actually getting to work with Matthew McConaughey professionally. So there's just nothing cooler than that. So it's been a lot of fun. And I really enjoy having them on my sets, on my commercials and stuff. And they enjoy it, too.
2: You know, one other thing that I'm curious about from the class. So you have this process where you kind of break down some films and go through them together. I imagine that along the way, you sort of try to teach some of the kind of rules for your creative process. But if you're orienting a student towards this sort of new realm of creativity, how do you think about like getting them familiar with the rules, but also understanding that they can break those rules too?
0: Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question because I think what they learn from the class is, so for example, this semester, we're studying Matthew's film, Free State of Jones, directed by Gary Ross, The Beach Bum by Harmony Korine, and then Guy Ritchie's movie, The Gentleman. And, you know, these three directors take totally different approaches to directing. And the students see it in real time when we watch the exclusive behind the scenes videos that Matthew shot during the shooting of those films. And, you know, Harmony Kareem is really loose. He's loose with the script. He kind of lets the actors totally improvise. He'll just make up scenes on the day because he liked the light over here. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone like Gary Ross is much more controlled. He sticks with the script. He's a screenwriter. He schedules out his days very carefully. He starts shooting about an hour and a half into the day. He knows the script. But then someone like Guy Ritchie will spend the whole first half of the day just rewriting scripts the script with the actors in the trailer while the crew is waiting for them. And that kind of seems like it would be a no-no and you shouldn't do it, but Guy Ritchie makes his day. He makes successful movies and that's just the secret sauce to a Guy Ritchie movie. That's why the dialogue sounds a certain way because a lot of it's rewritten on the day. It's very energetic. It's the actors trying to stay on top of the new script. It's very spontaneous. So, you know, he likes to rewrite off camera then get in front of the camera in the second half of the day Harmony Korine tends to improvise in front of the camera and then Gary Ross is more traditional how we usually think of coming into a day you know we have our script pages we have our sides they're memorized we go in and that doesn't mean we change the plan if we need to that's okay I mean Gary Ross is a professional who I mean he made The Hunger Games he knows how to make movies he knows how to you know, throw out the script when he needs to, the plan when he needs to. But these directors take very different approaches to directing. And although the class is more of a producing class, the students, the writers, and the directors do get exposure to how breaking the rules on the directing, writing side can be done successfully. Breaking the rules, in order to break the rules, you got to know the rules really <laughs> right. well. That's really yeah. the key. I mean, mm-hmm. you go to like Picasso's realist work and you say, that guy can paint. Like he can paint a person. He knows light, he knows shape and form and line. And then you, you know, when he moved into cubism, he is breaking the rules in a very deliberate way because he understands the rules better than almost anybody. So on the screenwriting side and on the directing side, you're really able to start breaking the rules once you know the rules and you intimately know why they're there so you can break them in a way that doesn't make the whole house of cards come falling down, either story-wise or production-wise.
1: Speaking of breaking rules, Matthew McConaughey strikes me as the type of person who is very aware of rules but is also willing to break them. Could you talk about what having somebody like him in the classroom, what's his influence on the learning process for students?
0: Matthew's influence on the learning process is that Matthew really emphasizes the subjectivity of creating art and that there's no right and wrong. Better stated, there's more than one right answer. And that's something that students really need to learn because I think students coming into a class like this, they think, oh, Gary Ross has all the right answers. He's a big movie director. I got to listen to him and do everything the way he does it. And that's not Matthew's approach. Matthew's approach is, hey, students, we want you to get up in front of the class and declare, declare, Matthew uses that word, declare your script notes, declare your storyboards how you would shoot a certain scene. And then we'll look at how Gary Ross storyboarded it. But that doesn't necessarily mean Gary Ross is right and you are wrong. That just means you had a different idea for how the story should be told. So that's very much an approach that Matthew brings, that there's something about this idea that there's no bad movies because one person's bad movie is another person's favorite movie, that everything is subjective. There's more than one right answer, and you have to trust the process. Now, Matthew does bring a lot into the classroom about the best practices in terms of directing actors, for example. He's an expert in that, obviously. He's an Academy Award-winning actor. And he gives future directors a lot of great advice about how to properly direct a trained actor. What do they like, what they don't like, all that good stuff. And I can get into the details on that. But it's kind of a two-hander. It's kind of like, hey, here's how you can break the rules. Here's how you can have your own ideas, but also here are the rules. Go ahead and listen up and take notes. So it's a good use of both approaches.
2: So films are big projects. We were speaking with a cinematographer yesterday who's worked on you know, Wakanda and Loki and these really big productions with hundreds of people involved. And even if you're a student kind of doing a student film, it's hard to do just everything on your own. So how do you coach the students to get started in a big project like a film?
0: First of all I coached them on how movies are made outside of film school because as a student I was not really taught how movies were actually made. For example, I had all my students raise their hands like who has ever done a tech scout before your student film shoot and like one person raised their hand. They didn't didn't know what a tech scout was, but a tech scout is very important in terms of coming up with your plan and getting everyone all department heads On the same page. So you're all collaborating and getting on the same page before you show up on set and you start burning that expensive time on set. So that's one thing that we do is we really just teach how to better be more efficient with the collaborative process by using best practices. We also teach how to just be a better collaborator, you know, how to never say no, how to say yes and, you know, that's something that's a message that Matthew always communicates, that when you tell someone no, that shuts down that collaborative back and forth. But when you say yes and, which is a rule of improvisation, especially improv comedy, you can start a conversation and develop the idea into something better using both people's ideas. Even if you don't initially relate to that person's idea and you're not positive that it's right. You also have to remember that sometimes the wrong answer is the right answer. I find that out in post all the time. I'll have an actor do a take and I'll say, well, that's not right. And then in post, I'm like, oh, that's actually the take we needed. So I learned early on in the process that there's really no wrong answers and there's more than one right answer. And that's a big part of collaboration, that you just never know where the next best idea is coming from. So you have to have your ears wide open and take those ideas from everyone, even a PA on set. Matthew, talks about how in college he thought as director, he had to have all the answers and he had to come to set with all the answers. And what he learned was that it's okay to say, I don't know. He works with Richard Linklater and asks, you know, Rick a question. And Rick's like, I don't know. And that's actually a great answer because sometimes then the actor has to come up with the answer. Well, crew person has to come up with the answer and that's a good thing.
1: Scott, you touched on one of the creative process killers of saying no, but wonder if you could go deeper on those things that you've seen on various projects. And then when, you know, watching students, you kind of see the many different dimensions of creativity when it's going well and when it's not. What are some other things that kill the creative process?
0: Something that kills the creative process is not adapting to the situation on the ground. So sometimes you need a sunny day to make the scene work, but it's cloudy and it's raining. And instead of waiting for those clouds to part and then realizing the whole day went by and they never parted, you have to adjust. You have to get creative about how you're gonna make an adjustment to something that didn't go your way. An actor doesn't show up. A crew person doesn't show up. You lose your location at the last second. I mean, it can be a creativity killer to have something that you needed go away, or it can be the best thing that ever happened to your day because maybe you pivoted to this other idea that ended up being better than your original plan. For me, shooting documentary really taught me that because in documentary film, we don't really expect things to go our way because we're dealing with real life and people's emotions, non-actors, and we're dealing with weather and other things. It's just a less controlled environment. We have a smaller crew. But the fact is, things go wrong again. It's an inevitable part of the process that things go wrong and that it's a messy process. So the sooner you can figure out how to adjust to that thing that didn't go right, the faster the, those creative sparks start coming back and you make lemonade out of lemons effectively.
2: What about dealing with constraints? It seems like in the different disciplines that we talk to, and certainly in design, constraints can maybe initially seem limiting, but in, in the end they end up spurring a lot of creativity. How do constraints work in the film world?
0: I think constraints are the same way. I mean, when I was an undergraduate student, I really didn't understand how to put constraints on myself. I didn't think it was necessary because I wanted to make a movie that resembled the movies I saw when I went to the theater. So there's many scenes, there's many characters, a lot of actors, multiple locations, a longer story, very dialogue-driven. And I realized that on a student budget, I overwhelmed myself. I didn't have enough people. I didn't have enough resources to really execute that in a great way. So when I went to grad school, I put constraints on myself, less dialogue, less characters, one location. And what happened was because I had to work within these funky constraints, I came up with these way more interesting stories that you don't normally see in a theater. And that really lent itself to making a short film that was interesting, that would be really popular on the festival circuit. And I encouraged my students to give themselves constraints to set themselves up to succeed better. Because I always tell my students, you know, the hardest filmmaking you'll ever do is the filmmaking you do as a student. It's horrible. It's so hard. Film school took years off my life because making a film is so hard and then do it with no money and without professional crew people, it's really tough. So I tell students, you got a really happy future ahead of you. I know a lot of you are scared of graduating, but making media on the other end of graduating, once you have a budget and you have professionals, it's so much easier and it's so much more fun. So enjoy it. Give yourself some constraints now to set yourself up for success. And then some of the constraints can fall away once you're in the actual industry.
2: We give similar guidance to our students because they often come into the class because it's very open. You pick your own project, decide what you want to work on, and they'll say, you know, I want to make a Bluetooth speaker, you know, and this thing has like 80 different parts, injection molded, machine, all these different processes. Like, you're gonna be lucky if you can make like three parts over the course of this class. Let's scope it down and figure out a way because you want to feel like you accomplished something by the end.
0: Yeah. Amen to that.
1: I'm curious about how you think about working with the right collaborators. Some collaborators amplify your skills, expand your skills, and some you know, work with you, but maybe don't have that amplification process. How do you think about finding the right people who help you do your best work?
0: Off the top of my head, it's very much about disposition. So you find people that meld with your communication style, with your personality, You know, I'm a Midwestern guy. I'm really laid back. I don't take myself too seriously. I don't walk on set all serious, like it's life and death. You know, some productions are like that, they're very stressful. And I don't like to be like that. So, whether it's the agencies I work with, the ad agencies, or the crew people I work with, they tend to be similarly laid back, similarly humble about their work, similarly open about feedback and input on their work. But That's not to say that I don't want people who are awesome at their job. I mean, I like to work with the very best people I can find. So I don't try to diminish people's talent by working with someone who's like friendlier necessarily. There are plenty of very friendly, collaborative people who are extremely talented. And actually, in fact, my experience has been that the most talented people tend to be kind of laid back because they're so confident that they don't have to put on airs, they don't have to kind of put on a show. They're just so confident in their skill set that they can walk on set and be very collaborative with their work. So I guess that's the initial way I would answer that question.
1: We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now... Back to the show. Scott, we're in the middle
2: of a writer strike right now, an actor strike. And it seems like partially this was brought on by this wave of new technology that's facing us, artificial intelligence, and you know, the sense that this could take away a lot of jobs potentially. But it's sort of been the case over the years that technology has at various points disrupted the film and television industry maybe you talk a little bit about how technology you know influences the creative process and how your techniques evolve along with it
0: not addressing AI directly but I feel like as technology has progressed you know there's always been this kind of resistance to go with it I think the last time I shot on film was 2008 or 2009 and a lot of people really resisted moving to digital. I didn't because film was expensive and I didn't get to see it right away and I had to get it processed. And so I was one of those who really was eager to embrace digital and then try to make it look like film after the fact. And nowadays it looks great. It's, you can add grain and it's hard to tell the difference. I think that in terms of how the industry, I personally don't understand AI a ton, So I'm not intimidated by it yet, at least, because I don't quite, can AI really write a great screenplay? I don't think so. But once it can, maybe I'll worry a little bit more. So in terms of how the industry has changed and distribution has changed, streaming is really the big question mark. Like, Are the big streamers going to be able to make that really profitable in the long run? We'll see. I think there will be a resolution to the strike. And I think it'll be a good resolution and we'll just move on and everything will be okay. And you know, actors and writers will be able to get what they want out of streaming because right now it's not there. We're kind of in this gray area with streaming because it didn't really exist during the last contract negotiation. So that does have to get figured out. I personally, while I don't stream a lot of stuff, I kind of watch my content in theaters. Still, I'm kind of a movie guy. I don't watch a lot of series. I don't watch a lot of episodic. The reason why I think streaming is actually great because there's just so much more content being produced. It's not like when I went to film school where it was like, you got the three big networks and you have a handful of studios over here. You have so much content being produced and then content, not just on streamers and, and network television and cable and theaters. You have social content being made, you have web series, you have all this stuff. And so I tell my students, you guys are really coming up at a great time when all of you can get jobs in this business if you have the tenacity to stick with it, because there's a lot of need for people to make stuff. Again, I don't feel like AI is totally taking over the process, at least not yet. So I'm comfortable that it's going to be okay. And I think on par, the technology changes have been a net benefit for people who are coming up in the business.
1: So Scott, when you're teaching film to students, there's like the technical, the organizational, kind of lots of different tactical things that a student has to learn, but there's nothing more foundational than how to tell a good story. How do you teach that? What are the elements of a compelling story?
0: I used to teach a screenwriting class and you know, everyone has a different opinion on what makes a great story first of all, I'm very much a structuralist. So I believe in a strong three-act structure. I think that for some reason, the human brain is wired to understand and appreciate a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. And I think character development and character arc and a character changing is important because that's how we relate to the story. The story is about the human condition in a way that's very accessible to us as audience members. So The character arc is important. How we relate to stories is also through theme. So the character arc is related to making a statement about something, something that exists, something that we deal with on a human level. So the thematics of the story are important. And it's so beautiful how it's intertwined. The thematics is intertwined with character, that arc, and the structure itself. And then beyond that, I think you can get really creative with the types of stories you want to tell. You can do them in any genre you want and have fun. I tell students that with their short films, because, you know, telling a compelling short story, you know, when you don't have 90 minutes and you only got five minutes, it's really hard. So I like to give students a lot of pointers about how to tell better short stories. I think short stories should be human. Again, they should engage on a thematic level that short films are more like poems or songs. They're very thematic and they're less about plot and more about, hey, how are you commenting on the human condition? Better short films tend to be short. So five minutes is better than 25 minutes, usually. So again, restricting the length of your story. And I think it's also very smart to limit your story in terms of number of characters and location that that just helps you generate a better story. And then in terms of plot, you know, a short film has to be like a short story, and then it doesn't have subplots. It doesn't have secondary characters really focused on your protagonist and what that character learned or didn't learn within the story.
2: To follow on to that question, so a big portion of our audience isn't necessarily working on, you know, a long or even a short film but rather, they might have to pitch something to a boss or a client. And you know, part of your work is creating these commercials that are maybe there's some parallels. But how can you advise people to make more compelling pitches that bring people along with a clear vision?
0: That's a great question. I mean, pitching, when I was in school, no one taught me how to pitch. I didn't really understand what pitching was. I was intimidated by pitching because my idea of pitching was like you walk into a room and then a spotlight shines on you and you just (laughs) go and you put on a show. And I didn't learn that pitching really is a conversation. Pitching really is more about the other person than it is about you. And if you can flip that switch in your head, pitching will get more comfortable. You're trying to give someone something that they want and need. So you should be in tune with the person you're pitching to their questions, their interests, what they're looking for. And if you go into a pitch meeting, let's say you got a movie that's a really great romantic comedy and you're pitching to a production company that has made really great romantic comedies and they want the next best romantic comedy, we'll give it to them. If you really believe that that project is awesome, go in with confidence and just explain the movie to them the way you would explain It to a best friend. Like, let's say you just pretend you just saw the movie and you're trying to convince your best friend to go see it. That's the attitude. I mean, pitching is also about being very prepared. So, you know, you want to practice your pitch. You want to practice it to your friends. You want to practice it in your car, figure out the best turn of phrases to include or not include. So, there is this practice that's involved. There is a skill involved. But beyond that, it's really about just being. Confident in your idea, whatever that idea is, whether it's a movie or a product, if you really believe it's an awesome thing, then you are doing the other person a favor by sharing it with them. And take the pressure off yourself because you don't usually get the green light in the room. You don't usually get the I'm sold, done, we're gonna work together thing. No, usually, you know, whoever you're pitching to has to go talk to their bosses. And so just don't expect that yes in the room. It doesn't really happen. Just do your thing. Explain it the best you can. Listen to that person. Listen to their questions. See if they follow up and infuse it with that enthusiasm and passion that you have for that product that you've created. Just don't hide that. For me, my strategy, it's not really a strategy. It's just part of my personality. I love this stuff. I love pitching movies. I love movies themselves. I love commercials. I love pitching commercials. I love pitching my ideas because I've thought about them and I really believe in them. And while I'm open to other ideas, here's the ideas I have right now. And I think they're cool and I'm committing to them in my mind and I'm sharing them with a childlike enthusiasm because just like a kid gets in the sandbox and starts playing and ideating and coming up with stories and coming up with images and sculpting things, that's what coming up with ideas is for me. That same childlike joy is there. And I think people like feeling that enthusiasm. It breeds confidence. So if you got that, share it, show it. Scott, you see a
1: lot of students go out into the world. You know, they've got a new education. They've got this idealism, that energy you're describing. And some are really successful and some aren't. Of your students that you've seen go out and build successful careers, is there a pattern to their success? What do they do that shifts the odds in their favor of being successful?
0: The only difference I've seen is they're the ones who don't give up. It's really the main differentiator that it's a hard business. It can be discouraging. There's a lot of rejection involved. It's hard to make money doing what you want to do. But once you understand and you give yourself grace and you say, you know what, this is going to take longer than I think, that's important. I tell students, it's going to take longer than you think. I had a director in my class a couple semesters ago, Tracy Lehman. She's out in LA. She just made her first feature film. I said, hey, after you moved to LA, you want to be a director. But how long did it take to make a living being a director? She said, about 10 years. 10 years. She was a PA. She worked doing other things. She was people with And then she just kind of built up her directing career. So she was in the business. She was making money, but she wasn't making money doing what she wanted. And she also wasn't making much money. So survival was hard and came with a certain amount of pain. But she never gave up. So she just made her first movie. If she gave up after five years, moved back home, she wouldn't have just made her first movie. So, I mean, That's really the difference. And the people who tend to not give up are the people who have that childlike. I'm just going to do it. I just love this. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. And those are the people who tend to succeed because it's that drive that makes them not give up. So Matthew describes it as, you got to be just a little bit crazy, (laughs) and that's true. You got to have a little bit of that child inside that's still calling the shots at least the big shots that have to do with, you know, whether or not you quit or stick with it. So stick-to-itiveness is in my mind, the key.
2: Yeah, sort of uh, build on that, you know, I'm curious about just the volume of work, the types of different things you ended up doing. We were talking about Picasso earlier and I had to look it up because I wasn't sure, but he made over 13,500 paintings and in total almost 150,000 different pieces of art. In your career, we talked before, and you do a lot of different things. You teach, you're working on commercials, you're working on films. And maybe talk a little bit about just like kind of the volume of work you have to create to get to where you're hoping to get.
0: Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple aspects of that. So I tell my students after they graduate, keep making stuff, even if they're not getting paid to make stuff. Just keep making stuff because work begets work, whether it's paid work or not. There's something just in the universe about, You make stuff, you're creative, more work comes your way. I don't know what it is. It's a magical thing. The other thing is the more work you do, the better you'll get at your skill. So, you know, doing passion projects, doing spec work is really important because you're exercising those muscles that it's going to take to get really good at what you want to do. And then when you do get that big opportunity, you know what you're doing because you were always exercising those muscles. And then a lot of it's about revenue streams, multiple revenue streams. I always tell my students, if you have skills you can monetize, go monetize them. You know, so I've done so many different types of things. You know, I worked in video games. I've been a paid illustrator. I've been an art director. When I graduated film school, I was getting films distributed. A lot of my films that I made on spec made money, they got distributed. I made a spec web series that then got picked up by Sony. I was getting paid to write. I was getting paid to edit. So I was editing things. I was getting paid to consult. Then I started getting paid to direct commercials. Then I started my own production company. So I'm effectively getting paid to produce commercials and I produce work too. You know, And I aspire to write books one day, and, and I still teach, so that's a little revenue stream. So look, I know not everyone's cut out to do all that. I just happen to be wired where I like to work. I prefer working to going on vacation because my work is fun. Every day is just a joy because I like creating things. I think the more work you do, the more likely it is that you will get paid for that work. And I still do spec work. I mean, I'm writing and directing a virtual production demo for a virtual production stage in a month and a half because I've always wanted to shoot virtual production. And I'm sure having gone and done that, now I can say, yeah, I've directed virtual production projects. I'm sure more virtual production projects will come my way for having done that for no income. There's a lot of benefits to just keeping busy, I think.
1: Totally agree with the multiple revenue stream strategy that's uh, so smart, just makes you less fragile, you know, like more adaptable to, hey, there's a pandemic and now your work's got to shift or your interests have shift and you might want to move to a different location. It gives you a lot more flexibility if you can do that.
0: Absolutely.
1: Scott, what are you reading, watching, listening to that is interesting and exciting, something that has caught your attention?
0: I'm a shameless Star Wars fan. So I've been watching Ahsoka and I'm just, you know, I'm into how an IP like Star Wars can continue to survive and reinvent itself despite a rabid fan base that's highly critical. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's really interesting to me. And I'm interested in how Dave Filoni is able to come up with new stories, particularly with his new Ahsoka series and how he's able to sort of, you know, parlay, the fan base of Clone Wars and Rebels into a live action show and really pull it off and have the fans come along for the ride and actually be very positive about it. So that's a bit of an obsession for me. And then the latest book I read was The Making of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I just love to read books about the making of movies and include the entire part of the process, whether it's the you know, early drafts of the script and how the script was rewritten and story choices that were made, you know, in the case of that film, you know, Spock originally died at the end of act one. He died in the beginning of the movie Hmm. instead of the end of the movie. I didn't know that. I'm like, well, yeah, it really makes sense that they saved that for the climax, you know, (laughs) smart move, you know, but it's a reminder that the creative process is dirty and the first draft always sucks, whether it's the first draft of a script or, your first edit, your first cut, it always sucks. And it takes time to hone it. Writing is rewriting and editing is re-editing. And it takes a long time to get the cut there. You know, I have a friend who made a movie. The movie wasn't getting much traction and then he finally cut 10 minutes out of it and now it's getting traction. But it took time to decide to cut those 10 minutes out. It's like, no, you got more work to do. It's, there's just more work to do. And I like to read this behind-the-scenes making of stuff because it's a constant reminder that it's not easy what we do, and it takes time, and it takes revision, and that's okay, and that's just a part of the process, and you got to trust the process.
2: Awesome. Well, Sky Rice, it's real pleasure having you here. Thanks so much for being on Design Better.
0: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
2: In this episode of Office Hours from Design Better, we're speaking with Dave Lockie, Web3 lead at Automatic. Automatic is a fully distributed company with the goal of democratizing publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it. Dave talks about why he sees crypto as an extension of the heart of open source and his perspective on how Automatic is a mission-driven business that cares about people's freedoms online.
3: Hi, I'm Dave Lockie, Web3 lead at Automatic. I've been in the WordPress space for an embarrassingly long time, came across it just trying to build websites for friends and family that led to, I guess, like a 15-year career in freelancing, building an agency, doing some entrepreneurship advisory, like all sorts of different hats in the WordPress ecosystem. Overlapping the last third, I would say, of that career in WordPress was this growing interest and passion for crypto, blockchain, Web3, whatever the label you prefer is. For me, crypto is an extension of the heart of open source. It is all open source. And on top of that, openness is the fact that you get open state, so you get open source also open state, which means that anyone can see what the computational state is of any particular contract or value or address at any time. So for me, it's very much just a continuation of what makes open source important, the ability for us to collaborate effectively in the digital realm. Crypto allows us to block the open web open. And what I mean by that is you can create an Ethereum address Bitcoin address, I'm using Ethereum as the example here, and that's permissionless. You don't have to sign up for terms and conditions, you don't have to ask for anyone's permission, and you can then transact on that network. And I th- think that's just a more elegant way of solving the problem of an open web. And so what problems does blockchain solve? Potentially the biggest problem, how we collaborate and are free as people in the digital realm. And I think that's a problem we're solving. If you've seen a piece of content, That has been signed with somebody's cryptographic signature then you can have very high certainty that that is authentic content and in a world where we're increasingly unaware of who's produced the content is it still exactly as was intended i think that the content authenticity Is going to become increasingly important as a trust signal and as a way for people to collaborate in fact it could pretty quickly become almost impossible to operate online without systems like this so i think crypto drops the friction and it allows for infinitely small transactions. And I think that just opens up this whole fascinating creative space for people that are already creating to be able to monetize in different ways. So another example is if you are a content creator, often at the moment, one way that you have to monetize is to gate your content. You have to stop people seeing your content in order to monetize it. That's always gonna be a valid model, but having tokenized content, let's just say, well, if you enjoyed this content and you valued it, why don't you save it to your library? collect it, pay a small fee and keep it forever. And I think that idea of being able to own the content that we come across and to be able to train our own AIs and to have our own rich content discovery algorithms that are built off these personal libraries, is just a really nice, interesting creative opportunity for the web to try and solve together. You know, why should all my Twitter likes stay over here? And why should my audio book collection stay over here? Like it's Ridiculous. That's not how things are in my house. In my house, I have all my things and they're where I want them and I can see them all and bring them together in new and creative ways. And providing social connections for an open web experience and tokenizing content, I think lets people do that. And I think that's just going to be very compelling for creators going forwards. New ways to monetize, new ways to create, new ways to collaborate. When price goes down and bad news washes out, and these things happen at the same time, right? Because when you take liquidity out of the system, then you get to see who's swimming with their clothes on. And that's what happened in the crypto ecosystem. And it turns out there were a bunch of bad actors. I think it's still very powerful to have a value layer that's native to the internet. I think it's still very valuable to have commissionless identity and transaction systems for the internet. If anything, it builds my conviction that these technologies are important. Having transparent financial systems is a good thing. It helps with collaboration and it helps deter bad behavior. Let's say you're donating money to an organization. Why shouldn't you be able to see where those transactions are going? Why should it go into a private bank account that's okay. There's just too much room for bad behavior in what should be shared financial ecosystems. So I welcome shining a light on what's going on with money and crypto helps out. So I think it's a good thing. The thing that I think makes Automatic special is that it is a truly value and mission driven business. A really good example of how this manifests is that we care about people's freedoms online. And so we can't open everything up to be a free fall. We have a trust and safety team. They protect our users online and take responsible action, but they're a permanent part of the automatic team. This is not an offshore team of high churn contractors. We care for these people deeply and they're part of the business. We have values, we care about them. And if you believe that those values matter, that they make the world a better place, then it's a really powerful feeling to be part of a business that so clearly and manifestly stands for these things and to be able to be part of an organization that's doing something different in the world. To learn more about career opportunities
2: at Automatic, go to dbtr.co slash automatic with two T's. That's dbtr.co slash
1: A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.